0: This is Omnia in Context. I'm Vince Eisner. There's a saying that goes, one should never discuss religion or politics in polite company. So we won't talk about religion or politics. Let's talk instead about religion and politics. They've always been linked in one way or another and not always to the good. This past week, we heard a torrent of religious backwash over the climate debate which frankly most scientists can scarcely believe is a debate at all. But many evangelical Christians and many hardline Republicans, there's that religion and politics link, have hit the airwaves once again to assert that climate change is a hoax and that God has it all under control. And when 16-year-old activist Greta Thunberg dressed down the UN and the other governments of the world for their inaction, well, she was mocked by President Trump and patronized by a leading Southern Baptist minister, Robert Jeffress, who said, somebody ought to read poor little Greta Genesis chapter 9 and explain that the rainbow is God's promise, that he won't melt the polar ice caps, and so on and so on. You've heard it. These events serve to illustrate just how some evangelical leaders and some political leaders are now finishing each other's sentences, while the rest of the world looks on in disbelief. And yes, that pun is intended. Despite the long questionable history that religion and empire have shared, it doesn't have to be this way. Religion and government can and have cooperated in ways that honor the best of both institutions and that don't throw its heroes or its saviors under the bus. I'm honored to welcome one of the great leaders and political activists, Rabbi Arthur Waskow. Rabbi Waskow is founder and director of the Shalom Center, a prophetic voice in Jewish, multi-religious, and American life that brings Jewish and other spiritual thought and practice to bear on seeking peace, pursuing justice, healing the earth, and celebrating community. He was named a wisdom keeper by the United Nations. He's the recipient of the Abraham Joshua Heschel Award by the Jewish Peace Fellowship, and he was listed as one of the most 50 influential American rabbis by Newsweek. I can tell you that during my days working on Capitol Hill in social justice, no serious gathering, meeting, or public protest would have been complete without the presence and the inspiration of Rabbi Waskow. And if you agree with the lyrics of that famous protest song by Peter, Paul, and Mary, if you've been to jail for justice, then you're a friend of mine then you are about to meet a true friend (laughs) and a repeat offender. He's a friend of scholarship, a friend of social justice, those in life's margins, and he's a friend of the earth. Rabbi Waskow, it's a privilege having you on our program today.
1: Thank you for this conversation.
0: I'd like to begin with something that you wrote in a recent blog post. You used this phrase, the fusion of deep spirituality and vigorous activism, I really like that, but I'd like to hear more about what you believe that to be.
1: Sure. I think this goes back to the experience that made me a serious Jew 50 years ago. 51 years ago, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King was murdered on April 4th. And the black community of Washington, D.C., which is where I was living, as well as many, many, many other cities in the country, erupted. President Lyndon Johnson sent the army to occupy the capital city of the United States and imposed a curfew. I spent the next week working with a loose network of white uh, civil rights and anti-war activists, which I had been for a decade, to get food and medical supplies and lawyers and doctors into the Black community, the police. In theory, the curfew applied to everybody. But in fact, The police didn't care about white folks being on the streets. So I spent the week, along with others, getting food and medical supplies and so on in the black community, which is otherwise cut off. One week after Dr. King was killed came the first night of Passover. At that point in my life, that was the only Jewish practice that I had kept in any serious way at all. So I walked Mm -hmm. home that afternoon before the first Seder night uh, to get ready Uh, for the Seder, and that meant walking past the army, and it meant walking uh, past a jeep with a machine gun that was pointed at the block I lived on. And my insides, my guts, more than my brain, began to say, this is Pharaoh's army. You're going home to celebrate the Seder, the uh, release from slavery of people 3,000 years ago, and uh, we are with Pharaoh's army on the streets. Mm-hmm. And it transformed the Seder for me from something serious to something like a volcano. The traditional Haggadah, the telling of the story, has in it a line that says In every generation, every human being must look upon himself, herself, as if we go forth from slavery to freedom, not our great, 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 great grandparents only. Mm-hmm. And i had read that line ever since I was old enough to read, but it never meant very much. But that night, it meant everything. So what I did during the next year, I was deeply moved and found myself writing a new version of the telling of the story, a version we call the Freedom Seder, and bringing into the traditional telling passages from of the slave rebellions in the U.S. of the 1830s and 40s, of Gandhi and King and uh, Thoreau uh, in jail, and a lot of material that focused on the liberation struggle not then achieved and not still achieved in fullness of Black America from slavery, from racism, from segregation, now from mass incarceration. So what happened for me in that process was the sense that the politics of the Seder, which were f- focused only inward, only uh, on Jews, this Freedom Seder was as near as anybody has found the first time that there was a Passover Seder that included the liberation struggles of anybody besides the Jewish people. What happened was, for me, the political question of racism and liberation and the religious process of drawing on ancient texts, going deep into them to spiritual transformation, that was all one thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. It wasn't two separate things. And that transformed the rest of my life. I found myself drawn more and more and more deeply into Jewish uh, thought and Jewish practice and the creation of new kinds of Jewish communities called Chavarot, which means fellowships, in which it was not uh, with a hired rabbi defining what Judaism was, but a collective community defining what Judaism is and is Mm -hmm. becoming. I do think of politics as the spirituality of a community
0: oh let's let that sink in for a moment what you just said that politics is the spirituality of the community or at least an expression of the spirituality of that community say more about that
1: people tend to think that spirituality is something individual but a whole community can create its its collective spirituality the great traditions all teach a compassionate focus on justice, on making peace, on healing now, healing earth. It became my life uh, mm. that these seemingly two separate things were
0: really deeply, deeply the same. Is it fair to say that what that experience did for you was to reconnect the organic connection between spirituality and our political life or active life? Yes.
1: In each era, the great new spiritual uprisings, have come as a result of imperial, political, and also, look, Pharaoh thought he was a god, right? Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. Caesars, the coin that is the base of that famous story with Jesus about whose image is on the coin, the coin had the head of Caesar, and then it said, Caesar, imperator, that is emperor, velos, god. The, C- the hmm. Caesars, the emperors, the Roman emperors thought they were the gods. And they operated that way. And the same with Pharaoh. And I think really weirdly and appropriately, uh, about, what, three weeks ago, President Trump was heard talking about himself as the one, the
0: savior. just or- yes, the chosen one, right?
1: Yeah. So when that imperial domination, subjugation becomes intolerable enough is when you get the bursting forth of a new religious, spiritual, politically insurgent group. So the result of the Egyptian and Babylonian empires is Torah. Mm -hmm. The result of the Roman Empire was both rabbinic Judaism and Christianity. Uh, The result of tyranny in Mecca was the revelation of the Quran. And I think we are in one of those extraordinary moments, not Mm. just because of the current president of the United States, but because modernity has played already the role of Rome in shattering all the existing, we might say classical, religious communities and traditions. And we are now in the moment of new spiritual responses, we are in the midst of creation of new forms of Judaism. And we are also in the midst of the creation of new forms of Christianity. And the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, nuns. Yes. Religion? Yes. Question mark? None. Those people are not absent of spirituality. In fact, some of them really do have this union of spiritual and political, um, uh, in an insurgent way. And I think there is going to be the emergence of new forms of spirituality, and which will include po- political energy uh, in not only American, but other societies as well.
0: Some people would find that really frightening. <laughs> I find it encouraging and exciting, and I'd never thought about the parallels between the fall of governments and the rise of certain religions. I
1: think it's no accident that the key week which Christians now call Holy Week, the key week in the life of Jesus and the life of that movement, was the week of Passover. Because Mm -hmm. if you're going to um, attempt uh, a nonviolent challenge to the Roman Empire and its local puppet government, what better time to do it than the time of Passover? So (laughs) the Last Supper is understood to be a Passover Seder. The community came together. There's this march from the Mount of Olives into the heart of Jerusalem, challenging the old system. There's a wonderful description, I think it's in Luke, of that march and the people on it chanting psalms. And some supporters of the old regime, the empire, tell Jesus he should make his followers shut up and stop chanting. And he says this great line, if they were to be quiet, The very stones would speak.
0: Yes. Uh, one of the verses that are very often uh, seen as kind of cryptic, not quite sure what it means. Uh, what you're suggesting, though, if I understand you right, is that there is an inevitability of the change that's going to happen because justice has its own agenda. It's like a plant that will break through rock in order to, to reach the light so that it can grow. It's an, there's an inevitability about it. Do you think that there are stones that are crying out today?
1: The icebergs are shrieking as they melt. The mountains of West Virginia are groaning as they are shattered to get to coal more easily. The coral Mm -hmm. reefs are wailing as they die. All those stones are speaking, and we better speak now.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I can't help but think that you sound rather like a prophet as as you share this. Jesus also walked a real tightrope when dealing with the Roman authorities, didn't he? Around these kinds of inevitabilities, the kinds of things that everybody saw but the Romans were not willing to acknowledge.
1: You know, the image on the coin story, which appears uh, just about identically in three of the Christian Gospels, has its uh, analog and connection in the Talmud, which figures. I mean, Jesus was. In fact, a rabbi. so the Torah says in the creation story that God uh, put the image of God on the on human beings. And in the Talmud, there's a story in which one of the rabbis asks another one, "What does that mean?" And mm-hmm. the second one says, "Look, when Caesar stamps his image on a coin, all the coins come out identical when the Holy One. Who is beyond all rulers stamps the divine image on a coin, meaning on a human being. All the coins come out unique. So that's a perfect example of what I mean by the fusion of spirituality and politics.
0: Yes, yes it's
1: a political comment and it's also a spiritual comment. So for sure, Jesus knew that uh, teaching of the rabbis. So when Mm -hmm. the two conservative Pharisees come to him, a radical Pharisee and rabbi, uh, and challenge him, trying to make trouble for him by asking whether they should pay taxes with this Roman coin, the point being they thought they'd get him in trouble because the coin did say that Caesar is God. So if he says yes, he's probably violating Jewish law. And if he says no, for sure, He's violating Roman law. So Mm -hmm. Jesus answers a totally Jewish answer. He answers with a question. Right. As the saying goes, why do Jews answer a question with a question?
0: I've always wondered. And the
1: answer is, why not?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Of course.
1: So, So he answers whose image is on the coin. So they say to him, like, dummy. Caesar's image. That's the point. And that's when, according to the text, he says, so give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And Christians have been arguing about what that means for 2,000 years. But I think there's a missing line. Either he didn't even need to say it because he knew the other two would know what he was talking about, or Mm -hmm. it got censored out later. First, they say, Caesar's image is on the coin. Then he puts his arm on the shoulders of the two people who are trying to make trouble. And he says, and whose image is on this coin? Because he knows Mm -hmm. the story from the Talmud that I just told. Whose image is on this coin? Meaning these two human beings. And the text says they went away abashed. So Mm -hmm. he got it. I mean, and they got it. Whose image is on their coin? God's image was on their coin. Caesar's image was on. So then the answer, so give to God what is God's gift to Caesar, what is Caesar's. It means, mm. listen, on your whole self is the image of God. Give your whole self to God. And who cares about this coin that has only Caesar's image on it? Mm-hmm. I think that's what it means. And I think it's a perfect example, the whole set of stories. And let me tell one more. Ten years ago, my oldest grandchild was eight years old. And Phyllis, my wife and I, she's also a rabbi, went out to visit the family, my daughter and her family. And it happened that we went on the weekend of the beginning of the reading of the Torah's story about the creation of the world. So I said to my Eight-year-old grandchild. So the Torah today says God made human beings in God's image. What do you think that means? Same question the rabbi asked 2,000 years ago. And my grandchild said, what's an image? So I said, well, like a photograph. And he said, mm-hmm. Photograph. That's really strange. God is invisible. How could there be a photograph of God? And I sit there, and the rest of this conversation, I don't say a word, except for defining image, I don't say a word. Then she says, well, you know, I guess it could be the other way around. Uh, People could be photographed, so maybe God is in the image of human beings.
0: Oh, then, it did not take long, did yeah, but it? But wait, oh.
1: wait, wait, it got deeper. She sits a while and thinks, and she said, but we're all different from each other, and it couldn't just be one of us chosen to for God to be in the image of that one, and we're all different, so how could that be? And then she sits there for a while more, and her face lights up, and she says, maybe we're different from each other, The way the pieces in my jigsaw puzzle are different from each other. And you got to fit us together. And if you fit us together, I can't even say it without crying. If you fit us together, we make a community. And a community is more like God. So... I think that's one of the richest pieces of Torah I ever learned in my entire life from this eight-year-old kid.
0: Uh, what, what an incredible story. Oh, you can't plan moments like that, can you? you no. Know,
1: as I said, more the question than the answer. That's the way of planning for extraordinary moments to happen is by bringing an, a text. I think it's like, it's like a spiral. The only way in which Judaism goes forward is by going backward in order to go forward, not to get stuck mm. in the ancient text. But what Midrash is, is a way of saying, okay, here's the ancient text. Do we hear something new in it?
0: Yes, similar to uh, Greek mythology. Uh, they, someone said that myths are stories of things that never were, but always are.
1: <laughs> That's great.
0: Which brings me to the misuse of scripture and text. Just the other day, uh, Robert Jeffress, who is the uh, pastor of First Baptist Church and is a frequent contributor to Fox News, Actually making fun of the, the young Swedish student who was here uh, to speak with the UN this past week. And he said, someone needs to read poor little Greta, the ninth chapter of Genesis, to know that you know, God has already made the promise he's not going to melt the polar ice caps and all of that. And how is it that they are so willing to throw their own religion under the bus for the purposes of, of, the, of the political right? And number two, what can we as responsible people of faith do in order to counter that?
1: To be honest, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, all of them, were watching this play out with where you might have thought it was impossible. Buddhism and its horrendous oppression of Muslims by Buddhist-led community in Burma and in Ceylon, uh, things you would think Buddhists couldn't possibly be doing. So I think within all the traditions, there is a streak of we are right and everybody else is wrong. I sometimes wonder why it's useful to go on reading all the passages of the Torah that includes the Israelites' genocide of the Midianites, seemingly, according to the Torah, commanded by God. And Mm -hmm. the only thing I've been able to come up with as to why to keep reading it is to keep reminding ourselves that we are not immune from the impulse to genocide. No people is immune to that impulse and reading it so as to say, oops, we better check out what we're doing in the world. Make sure that this impulse, which is there, we are not acting on. The line, pretty famous, be fruitful, multiply, fill up the earth and subdue it. Right? So how yes. I've been asked, how do I deal with that line? And my answer is... It's done. We've done it. We have been fruitful, multiplied, filled up the earth and subdued it. Now what? Now what? What is the next stage of Torah? What is The Torah always looks toward a future grown-up human race. I think that the Song of Songs is the Garden of Eden for a grown-up human race. In the Garden, the way I understand it, the mistake in the garden. The voice, the divine voice says, speaking for reality, says, There is immense, wonderful abundance here. Eat of it joyfully. A little self restraint. One tree, don't eat, right? But that tree looked so lovely, smelled so wonderful. First Eve and then Adam couldn't believe that it wasn't delicious to eat. So they weren't going to deny themselves the joy of gobbling up everything. And the result was the abundance vanished. And the future says the voice is going to be that you're going to have to work every day of your life with the sweat pouring down your face just barely to be able to eat. Mm. I think that's the story of the Gulf of Mexico, when BP did not restrain itself from penetrating the Gulf two miles deep in such a way that 11 of their own workers were instantly killed, and the the life of the Gulf, the birds and fishes, and the workers and businesses of the Gulf were very badly damaged. Now, it's the whole planet. You don't have to wipe out life on Earth in order to know that you have subdued it. So then we have to shift. The Song of Songs is a joyful celebration. The human beings in the song, the Eden story ends with women are subordinated. The Song of Songs, women are not subordinated. They're equally joyful. They're loving. The erotic and the spiritual are no longer separated from each other. They're totally unified in the song of songs there's peace with the earth there's joy in the relationship between earth and human beings that's why i think the song of songs is the garden of eden for a grown-up human race and we need to ask ourselves what is the torah next
0: it, it points right back to the spiral that you talked about. There's a tremendous freedom in it, not only what you said, but in just the way you think that there that we have been given some degree of thoughtful authority in in how we move forward and how we respond to the things that are. I want to thank you so much, Rabbi. I want to wish you and all the folks who listen to
1: you a year of transformation, a year of breathing deep, the breath of all life A year of remaking a spirituality, collective spirituality of love, rather than cruelty for American society and for the planet as well. And a year of shalom and salam and paz and peace, all of which need to include justice and healing.
0: Rabbi Arthur Waskow. And By the way, did I tell you he was named a human rights hero by Trua, the rabbinic call for human rights, and received their first lifetime achievement award? We think that was a pretty good choice. You can find the Shalom Center online at shalomcenter.org. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave your comments. We like hearing from you. Thanks for joining us. And find us online at OmniaLeadership.org. By the way, be sure to ask us about our interfaith peacemaker teams. I'm Vince Eisner, and this has been Omnia in Context.